What's your story? That is one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm getting to know somebody. It's also a question that I love being asked because it's an opportunity for me to share my life with others as I in turn want to share their lives as well. Recently, Stacy and I got to have dinner with a, a new family at our church. We had a great time together. And over the course of dinner, they asked the question, so what's your story? What they were asking is, how did you guys come to be? What they were really asking is, Andrew, how did you get so lucky? <laughs> and as he asked, what's your story? We got to share some of the miracle behind how Stacy and I met and how we've made 16 years of marriage work. But what also happens when you share your story is it gives you an opportunity to reflect on how good God has been to you and to celebrate even in your own life that what you once were, you are no longer and, and how God has worked in you. If we're honest, all of us, we're a collection of experiences and each one of our experiences work together to formulate these stories in our lives. And as we share life and ministry together, essentially what we're doing is we're not only sharing stories, but we're coming together to create stories. And stories matter. Here at Country Bible, we say it like this. Every number has a name. Every name has a story. And every story matters to God. What you do with your story has the potential to influence somebody's history for all eternity. It's a critical consideration that we need to give to the stories in our lives. And so today we're going to ask and answer the question, what's your story? Last week we kicked off a brand new series entitled Called to Commit, and it was a great time together. It was like drinking from a fire hose, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Let me invite you right up front to grab your Bible and jump to the book of Galatians. It is going to be seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to raise your hand and allow one of my friends to bring you a Bible. This Bible is a gift to you. It's yours. We want you to have it and to keep it. So uh, just throw up your hand. Let them know you need a Bible. We'll make sure to get you one. If you're looking for Galatians, you're going to want to turn seven eighths of the way through your Bible. It is after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you have Acts or Acts of the Apostles. Then you have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you hit any of those, you've gone too far, hang a left. An easier way is just to turn to the table of contents at the front, find the page number and cheat. I'm good with that. As you go there, I want to let all my incessant note-taking friends know that I love you. I love you. I love you. And as we had a lot of information that we assimilated into the message last week, we're going to spend just a moment recapping today. I think it's critical to establish culture and context because I believe that the more you establish culture and context, the better able you are to understand and apply the word of God to your life. So we introduced the entire book last week in short order, and I want to just kind of recap. So here's some of what I want to share with you. The author of this letter is a man named Paul. He writes to a church around A.D. 49, before the Council of Jerusalem, which is critical to the formation of the ministries. He's writing to a collection of churches in Galatia. Galatia is a, is a region in Asia Minor. He writes to churches like Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. He writes this letter 
for two reasons. First, to tell the truth about salvation, to share the authenticity and the accuracy of what salvation is and what it isn't. And the second is he is going to address us as believers that we are called to commit to our salvation. And if there's a a key verse that we're hinging this entire series on, it really could have been any number of them, but we chose Galatians 6, 3, and 4, which focuses on our call to commit to our salvation. Now last week, as we jumped in, we learned that this is Paul's admonishment to this new church. We're going to get into that here in just a moment. Before we jump in, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for meeting us here where we're at. Now, I pray for an encounter this morning, that each one of us would encounter you in spirit and in truth, and that as we encounter you, our lives would be changed forever. Holy Spirit, we invite you to make sense of this message, to draw out in us who we are in you and to instill in us what you have for us this morning. Father, you've appointed me with the task of sharing this message and I've done all the work that I can do heading into it. And so Father, I pray now that by your power and your strength, you'll use my words with authenticity and accuracy through integrity to preach a gospel that is God-centered. Help us to, to redeem this time for your glory and your good. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a pleasing and acceptable gift in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, with your Bible in hand, let's get to work this morning. Before we head into where we're going to be today, which is Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 24, let me recap for you from Paul's letter, his introduction, beginning in verse 6. It's critical for how we transition today. Paul writes this letter after introducing himself. He says, hey guys, listen, I am shocked that you're turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ, also known as the Judaizers, which we'll talk again about today. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. Again, I want to say that we have said it before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Can we agree up front that that is really strong language? That if that letter is being written to you, and and it starts off with, I am shocked I am appalled at your behavior, that you have so quickly turned away from what's right and so readily given yourself over to an imitator. We can all agree that that is a strong admonishment and that it would be hard to receive. So on the heels of understanding that, you might find this as curious as I did as you jump into verse 10. Listen to what he says. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. I love Paul's sense of humor. Now, you may have missed it, but after prefacing what he's about to say with a strong admonishment, essentially calling the people foolish 
for walking away from the truth and telling them that he's appalled at them, he says, obviously I'm not too concerned with what you think about me. If I was trying to win the approval of people, I would pull back on the message. I would, I would give it to you in a way that was a little easier to, to hear and to digest. I would, I would use gentle fingers as I'm, as I'm helping you understand the, the message. But that's not what Paul is talking about at all. Would it surprise you if what Paul is talking about here when he says, obviously I'm not trying to win the applause or the praise or the approval of people but of God, because if it weren't so, I wouldn't be Christ's servant. Would it surprise you if I told you that the reason he's saying this has nothing to do with his strong admonishment and has everything to do with the fact that the Apostle Paul is being called a seeker-sensitive, watered-down gospel preacher? This man is being accused by the Judaizers and others of being too nice, of having too much to do with culture and making people feel good. And not by the people who are reading the letter, but by the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers were these religious zealots who practiced and preached Jesus plus the Talmud. The 613 laws, the Mosaic laws, as well as rules and regulations to establish corporate and individual worship was the key to success and salvation. The Judaizers practiced Jesus plus the physical circumcision. The Judaizers practiced Jesus plus going to church this many number of times in a given week and praying this specific prayer at a specific place with specific people, they practiced Jesus plus all of their superimposed man-made religious activities on salvation. So when Paul gives the gospel and he says, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, But the inverse of that is Jesus plus nothing, which is what we bring to the table, equals everything. They are appalled. What they want to hear is Jesus plus our traditions, our preferences, our personal choices, our rules, and our regulations leads to salvation. But what Paul is saying is, look, guys, there's nothing you have done or can do or ever will do to earn salvation. It is Jesus plus what you bring to the table, which is a collective of nothing, which equals everything. And as the Judaizers are reading this and hearing this message, they are appalled. They are, they are stunned. They are, they are threatened. Their message is being threatened because people have been abused by religion. People have been pushed around by religion. People have had religion superimposed and shoved down their throats and they have been made to believe that a, that a structure and a set of system and beliefs and, and, and practices leads to a better salvation. And what Paul says is Jesus plus nothing leads to everything. There's nothing else you need to do to encounter and experience salvation in its fullness. Sanctification? Yes. And we're going to get to that. But there's nothing to experience salvation in its fullness that you need to do. In fact, there's nothing you can do beyond surrendering yourself to Jesus. And so they accuse Paul of being seeker sensitive. Now the thing that Paul says that is critical for Bible teachers, and if you've ever been a Bible teacher in here, you internally at least are applauding that somebody said it. What What Paul says here is really hard for most of us to hear, but I want us to hear it 
Anyway, listen to what he says. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Can I, can I put it in, in context? Obviously, I'm not concerned about the color of the carpet. Obviously, I'm not concerned about your favorite songs and making sure that Alex sings them on Sunday. Obviously, I'm not too worried about what sport coat you like that pastor wears or doesn't wear. Obviously, I'm not too worried about your desire for paint in the kid's wing. Obviously, I'm not too caught up in where you sit and what service you attend. Obviously, I'm not worried about your parking spot. Obviously, I'm not worried about your preferences. I am concerned with salvation. And because I am concerned with salvation, I am not focused on your preferences. And because I'm not focused on your preferences, you're inclined to be critical of any message that I preach. That's literally what Paul says. I just put it into our context. Paul knows something that I know. That many of us don't realize. That pastors live their lives in glass menageries. And, and I've become accustomed to that. I'm okay with that. Like there's not a moment in time where I'll go to Walmart. That I do not see somebody that does not know us. And inevitably not only is it hey pastor. The first thing that their eyes do is go straight to what's in my cart. <laughs> One of these times if Stacy will ever let me. I'm going to get a second cart. I'm just going to load up with booze. I just, just put it all in there. And as I'm going down, oh no, that's for Pastor Mark, not me. (sighs) We live our lives in glass menageries. I had to change trucks so that when I pass you, you're not offended anymore. You knew before it was a big red Ford F-150. Now it's a different vehicle. (laughs) I did it yesterday. Man, I was coming back from my son's soccer game. Some, I'm not even telling you who, but somebody was going 58 and a 65. And I passed them. I looked over and I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I think my truck's muddy enough they didn't recognize me. But holy buckets, man. Y'all need to learn how to go to the speed limit. Y'all are leading me to sin. I'm just saying. Paul knows what is all too true of pastors. We live our lives in glass menageries, and when we are more concerned about salvation than we are your personal preferences, pastors are under attack. Can I encourage you this morning, please pray for our staff. Please pray for our pastors, because biblical coaching, which is what we do here, uh, most of the time when I say the hard truth in love, which is straight from solo scripture, I don't usually get, oh, pastor, thank you for pointing out that I'm being completely selfish and a total tool. You're the best pastor ever. (laughs) Honey, why don't we come here more often? I was just starting to feel good about myself. Pastors, and I'm not asking you to feel bad for me. I literally am asking you to stand in prayer with me. Because we've got the awesome responsibility and the even greater obligation to share the truth, but to do it in a way that's in love, but without apologizing at the same time. And today, I just want to preface, is one of those messages. Next week, might be a little more decaffeinated. Today, mm mm-mm. This is 32 ounces of double espresso. The joke's on you. I stopped drinking coffee a month ago. See? No different. <laughs> boy, that, that man, when, he, when he all said, man, that boy needs some Adderall. So what? <laughs> if pleasing people were my goal, I wouldn't be Christ's servant. 
this is what we struggle with as Christians, if I'm being honest. We try to live one foot in the ways of the world with the other foot in the church. And then we wonder why we feel so torn inside. Paul says, what do death and life have in common? What do darkness and light have in common? What do God and Baal have in common? There's literally nothing in common. And the ways of the world with which we try to live and occupy and the ways of the church with which God is calling us to live have nothing in common. And so if you literally have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, you feel torn apart inside. You weren't created that way. You were created to be all in for Jesus because he's all in for you. So he says, if I was trying to please people, I wouldn't say these things. I wouldn't be, I I just would preach a gospel that you all wanted to hear. That's also one of my fears is too many pastors do that. They'll go through and they'll parse out different scriptures and they'll make it say what they want it to say to make you feel good about what you hear. My job isn't to make you feel good about what you hear. My job is to be authentic and integrous with the word of God and let the Holy Spirit do the work that only he can do. I hope to do it in a way that matters and makes sense and that's fun. But at the end of the day, popularity is not what I'm concerned about. Integrity is what matters most. And then he goes on in verse 11, and I love how he softens the blow a little bit. I appreciate Paul like this. He just said, I'm shocked and appalled that you guys are a bunch of morons, and I'm not worried about what you think. Dear brothers and sisters, that's a term, that's like a southern insult. You know you can say anything you want in the south as long as you follow it, but God bless your heart. Man, this, and this is real life. Like when I used to be a, a bigger boy, like in the South, you have what they call a Bob, big old boy. I was a big old boy. People was, I had this one woman. I'm not even joking. They can, and, and people in the South, old people in the South say whatever they want and they get away with it. This woman said, oh dear Lord, you are fat. God bless your heart. God bless my heart. Are you praying that I don't go into cardiac arrest? Like, what is this? I'm fat because of your grits and all the butter and sugar you put on it. Shut up. Leave me alone. Make, anyway. Man, I, it's the 11 o'clock service. You guys screw me up every week. Man. Dear brothers and sisters, he softens the blow, but what he's doing is he's saying, hey guys, I know this is a hard message to hear, but I'm in it with you. We're in this together. It's not good to know that you got a pastor that's in it with you. I, I really hope you can appreciate that. And not just me, but our staff. We want you to know that we love you and we understand where you're at and we're in this with you. We're in this with you. And he says, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. What is he talking about? What is the gospel message? I am so glad you asked. Jump in your Bible just a few verses before Galatians 1, 4. And I want you to circle this, highlight it, make asterisks, underline it, put a big fat smiley face next to it, whatever you've got to do. Here is the gospel in as plain and simple a fashion as you will ever receive it. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rest rescue us from this evil world in which we live. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. If ever you were to commit anything to memory, this would be the verse that you would want to commit to memory. You should get bonus points at Awanas for this one. This is the gospel. The gospel 
is that Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. So now Paul says in verse 11, I want you to understand that the gospel message that I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. In other words, you can try all you want to put all this together, but it's not going to work because it makes no sense. If it feels like it makes no sense, it's because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that an omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-loving God would give his son perfect, flawless for our lives. It doesn't make sense. So when you try to rationalize this with the human mind, it doesn't make sense. Verse 12, he says, I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He received it from intimacy with Jesus. He received this message, this direct revelation, not from TBN and all the telepreachers, not from the latest pop culture books, not from church shopping to see which church we like the best, which one has the best music and the better preaching. He received it from creating margins in his life to spend intentional time with the maker of the universe. And through getting to know Jesus intimately, the word of God came to life within him. That's why we say here at Country Bible Church all the time that the word of God is active and it's alive and it's still being written through you today. It's complete, but when you adopt it and live it out, it's being written in the hearts of others by how you live your life. Paul says, I didn't get this from anybody I heard on tele- television or, or the latest radio station or pop culture trends. I got it from spending time with Jesus. In verse 13, look, you, you know what I was like when I followed Jewish religion, don't you? I mean, you remember me. You, you heard about me, how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. In context, Paul knows that his audience knows about his reputation which precedes him. I don't want to pretend for a moment that anybody in here has an understanding entirely of what Paul's talking about. So let's take the guesswork out. Hold your finger here and turn to the left or put your Bible marker here and turn to the left about 60 pages to the book of Acts chapter 8 and Acts 9. We're going to look at Acts 8, 1 through 3 and Acts 9, 1 and 2. Saul was a, a, a leading Pharisee who had tremendous authority and power. And he writes, th- th- this is written about his life. Saul, now Paul, was the one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Stephen was martyred, stoned to death for his faith. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now jump after this. You're going to see that that Peter is going to give a message in Samaria. And he also has this amazing encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch where he's baptized. It's a cool experience. And now we read in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, more of Saul's deadly threats and lifestyle. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager. He was anticipating. He was longing 
to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. Followers of the way is another way of saying fully devoted followers of Jesus. They, they are Christians, but they're called followers of the way because in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So as they're following Jesus, they're following the way. And he describes here that Paul now, or Saul now, has permission from the high priest to, to, to kill and to arrest any followers of the way. He wanted to bring them in, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So now you get a little bit of a broader picture. And we're going to learn even more about Saul here, the Apostle Paul, in just a moment. But understand in verse 13, he says, look, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. You remember how zealous I was for my faith, that I was actually working to create a mass genocide of followers of the way. I was trying to kill you. You Christians, I had set in my mind to kill all of you, and I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. But now Paul is going to remember the collection of experiences which has created his story, and he's going to share his story as a way of sharing the gospel. Look at the transition in verse 14. I was far ahead of my Jews, of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Notice here the tense. He is speaking past tense. And so we need to understand when he says he was far ahead in Judaism as a Jew, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what we know about that culture and what this means for Saul of Tarsus. Saul was described as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a leading Pharisee. He was Ivy League educated, top of his class. He studied at the University of Gamaliel. Saul of Tarsus climbed the corporate ladder faster than any before him. Because of his position and his rank in religion and in society, Saul was powerful. He was opulent. He was successful. We also know that he would have been a family man because for anybody to be along in their Judaism as a Pharisee, they would have had to have a wife or a family. So we know that this man demands and commands respect. He has the kind of authority that says he can go and use his influence to the high priest and issue a law, an edict, a decree that gives him the freedom to go and kill and arrest any followers of Jesus that he wants to. He is robed in majesty. He's got these, these ornate gowns that he wears with bells on the back which drag on the ground and alarm or make a sound to alert others that a Pharisee is coming through so that they can get out of the way and pay their respects to the likes of Saul and his other Pharisees. He had arrived. Saul had done everything he could possibly do by his own hand with his own work, his own might to accomplish the things in life that he wanted to accomplish. And yet, when he has an encounter with Jesus, and you can read about this in Acts 9, beginning in verse 3, you'll read, on his life is changed forever and so he speaks about his story in the past tense he says I used to be this is what I used to be like but then he says 
to the church in Philippi. And I want to show you this in Philippians. Would you put this extra verse up here, please? Philippians 1, where he says to his friends in Philippi, as he's writing from prison, as he's writing in handcuffs, as he's writing after being beaten, as he's writing after being mocked, after he's been stripped of everything, including his dignity, he writes this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage because that's what it takes. So that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is not a man who is writing some philosophical idea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes the church in Corinth and he talks about and he celebrates his gift of celibacy. I don't know what man would ever celebrate that gift, but he does. He is writing and what he's intimating is that he's no longer married. Yet we know that in that culture, to be a Pharisee of Pharisees, one would have to be married. Is it possible that when Saul comes to this radical encounter with Jesus, who he was is no longer who he is. And that as he walks home, his wife says, this isn't the man that I married. This isn't what I signed up for and walks out on him. Could it be? In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, look, I wish all of you had the gift of celibacy like I do. Not that being married is a bad thing, but what he's saying is, if you can avoid being married, it is better for you to avoid being married so that you can focus all the more on the proclamation of the gospel. But if you have lust in your heart, it is better to be married than to burn with lust in your heart. So if you're going to be married, be married on purpose and be married well. In fact, treat marriage like Jesus treated the church honor, respect, love, even laying down your life for. It lets us know that he has lost everything. He, as a leading Pharisee, had money, and now he's in prison. He had rich garments, and now he is, he is in, in burlap sacks. He has had power, and now he is under control. He has lost everything for the sake of the gospel. And I, I want you to know this morning that I am not here telling you that the only thing you can do to further your faith is to, to surrender everything and sell your house and all your belongings uh, that way. I don't see that in scripture. But what I do see in scripture is that you surrender everything for the glory of God. In other words, to say, God, all that I have is yours as well. Lead me to do with it what you will. It's not mine, but yours. You are the giver and the sustainer of life, and I will give to you as you have given to me. This is a man who had gone from creating his own wealth, his own identity, his own success, his own future. He had fortified a legacy amongst his community that was to be feared. He was to be revered. And now, and now he has forfeited all that he worked to create with his own hands. And the undoing is he has totally surrendered everything to Jesus. And he writes this letter. He says, look, you know I used to persecute the church. You know how treacherous I used to be. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in the zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Now check this out, verse 15. But even before I was born, make no mistake, you are not a mistake. Even before I was born, make no mistake, you are not a mistake. God 
chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Not by anything that I did, but by his prevenient grace. And what is grace? Well, I've got a graphic I want to throw up on the screen to help us understand that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Check this out. It is God who lavishly poured out his riches on you and me at the expense of his one and only begotten son for all eternity. It is nothing that we did. It is nothing that we will ever do beyond believing and receiving, believing that God did that thing. Now, that's the hardest part is that we have a hard time believing that God would ever do this, not for others, but that God would ever do this for me. Oh, what a wretched sinner I am, Paul says. Who can save me from this life of misery? Praise God. The answer is Jesus Christ. So our obligation is to believe that God would do something for us and then receive to walk in his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And Paul says, look, you had a plan in my life, God, before creation. You created and you did not make any mistakes. You knew what you were doing and you knew what you were going to do in me. And you chose me through your marvelous grace. Then he says, then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Guys, I would encourage you to circle or highlight verse 16, at least the first five words, to reveal his son to me. Six verses, six words. To reveal his son to me. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus and to the Gentiles. God revealed his son to me, changed my history, gave me a new story that I could share with others. This is critical because I need us to understand, Saul was not a dumb man. He was educated in the school of religion. He started at around age seven. He excelled in his academia to the point where he was received by the leading rabbi in the leading school and the leading rabbinic teachings of the day. He understood and memorized before age 13 the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He excelled at academia. He was good at being really good. He knew the law. He knew the Talmud. He knew the rules and the regulations. He was, he was part of keeping those traditions for everybody else. It wasn't that he was short on knowledge. He was short on insight through the revelation of responding to a relationship. And in verse 16, it says that when he surrendered everything to God, God chose to reveal to him the truth about his salvation. You know, Saul was really good at doing church. But he knew very little about being the church. One of the things that concerns me and grieves my heart more than maybe anything else are the countless number of men and women and children that will step into a church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a midweek program to learn how to do church. I don't ever care to teach you how to do church. I'm not interested in you doing church because doing church is all about what we do that does it for you. that we come to an encounter with Christ which leads us to be the church one of the things that I've been excited to share with people is that of our 275 salvations that we've experienced as a community the last two years some of them have been in this church for a very long time 
Let me explain. Last year, I was standing at those double doors. I had a man respond to the gospel message. And he came up to me. And I knew him. And I knew him well as far as his role in this community. And he said, Pastor, I've been coming to this church for 24 years. And I've sat under amazing Bible teaching. And Dr. Chuck Larson is an amazing Bible teacher. The pastor before me. And he said, I have gone to Bible studies and I've taught small groups and Bible studies and I've given my money and I've actively participated in doing church. And then this man said what I'll never forget. He said, for 24 years, I've been at this church and it wasn't until today that I surrendered my life to Jesus. It is all too entirely possible to go through the motions of doing church without ever encountering the one who laid down his life for the church. Maybe you're here this morning and you've put a lot of stock in head knowledge. You're very learned and you know how to do church really well. But doing church will never take the place of encountering Jesus and surrendering your life to him. And the best thing that you can do this morning is respond by telling him, all that I am and all that I have is yours. You see, Saul, as a leading Pharisee, knew how to do church better than anybody else. But it wasn't until he surrendered his heart and bowed his knee to the creator of the universe that he encountered Christ and his life was changed forever. The second part of verse 16, he says, when this happened, I didn't rush out to consult with any human being. In in verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia and later I returned to the city of Damascus. And then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. The only other apostle I met at the time was James, the brother of Jesus, I declare before God that what I'm writing to you is not a lie. There's a few things that I want to investigate. First is he makes a point to say that for three years he got away into Arabia before he ever came into encounter the apostles. What he's saying here is during this culture and this context, people were really good at following a rabbi. They were really good at following a specific rabbinic teaching. They were really good at following a specific culture. They were really good at, at, at checking the proverbial religious boxes. And, and they, adopted, I wanna, I, I, they adopted the messages of this preacher because this preacher can really preach. Or they adopted the teachings of this teacher because they could really teach. Or they adopted the cultures of this community because it really related to them. And so they took in as much as they could. But it was never the sola scriptura. It was never the word of God alone. And it was all these, these influences from the outside that were infiltrating never pure, never pure religion. It was always their personal preferences. And what Paul says is, guys, make no mistake about it. This revelation that I received, it came from intimacy with the Father. I got alone with God, and he revealed this to my heart. It wasn't because I sat under the leading rabbis or the leading apostles or the leading cultures of the day. I spent time with my Father, and that's where I got, that's where I got my knowledge. That's how I grew in my faith and my understanding. What he's saying is, look, 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 you know, you, you, you don't show up to uh, buy a car and then drive off the lot without a key. You, you don't show up to the dinner table to eat a meal with an empty plate. 
You don't show up to the library to study without, without a book or without resources. Why in the world would you ever show up to church without your Bible in hand? Why would you ever show up to encounter the one true living God without an open heart and a contrite spirit with an attitude that says, speak to me, Lord, for your child is listening. And yet we, we do that. We, we understand how ridiculous it would be to show up at a, a car lot, buy a car, but not worry about the keys or to show up for dinner without a meal or, or to go to the library without any resources to study. But that's the exact approach we take to our faith is, is we show up and we want to superimpose on God everything that we like rather than receiving from the one who has created and Paul says, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go and, 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 and learn from everybody else. I wanted to know what, what, what God had for me alone. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, I didn't consult with just humans. He says, three, three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. And the only other apostle there I met was James, the Lord's brother. This is critical to understand that he didn't do it alone. After growing in his knowledge and his understanding through intimacy with God, he then got into a life group. Yes, he got into a life group. He did life and ministry with Peter and with the other apostles. What he did was he said, hey, these are my experiences. This is my education. This is how I hear the Lord speaking to my heart. And he pushed into Peter and Peter spilled into him and they worked collaboratively and collectively to grow each other up as iron sharpening iron. They worked together to create the best version of themselves that they could because we were not created for life and ministry alone. We were created to do life and ministry together with others. This is accountability. This is brotherhood. This is sisterhood. This is the really, really important relationships that we must have. Friends, I don't want us to be known as a church with life groups. I want us to be known as the church of life groups that every one of us is involved in a life group where we are praying together, where we are supporting one another, where we are having a lot of fun together, where we are worshiping together, and where we are serving our community. And because of how exciting it is, the church is, is duplicating, it's multiplicating, because we can't have, we don't have enough room in our house to keep everybody here because it's so exciting. So here, let me raise you up and you go launch a life group in that community so that you can have a greater impact there as well. That is what we are called to. Oh, I'm preaching much better than that. Listen, I don't, I, I, all I'm saying is, uh, take it in, friends. That this, is, this is so critical that we get the value and the understanding of doing life and ministry together. We were not created to go it alone. We need each other. I'm in a men's life group that meets on Wednesday mornings. There are 11 of us. And the thing of it is, we start on Wednesday around 7. Sometimes we're done by 9.30. We've had guys have to call into work late because of what God's doing in the upper room. That's a real thing. But it doesn't end there. I literally have had to turn my phone off of notifications because these guys text all day, every day. They're worse than any teenage girl you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and they're not just texting cool verses. They're texting immature gifts to each other, which is awesome. And I'm kind of guilty. We got a bunch of Chevy owners in that group, and I've been guilty of saying a few things about that. Then I had uh, one of my brothers in Christ send out a text message yesterday from Philippians 4, 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is good, pure, lovely, holy, right, admirable, if anything is good and worthy and trustworthy and praiseworthy, think on these things. And he said, man, I, this, is just, this is just rocking my heart. And then the whole group started talking about this and we have to speak to each other's lives. We need each other. Paul, when he came off the encounter with Christ, three years just learning from the Lord and intimacy with him, the first thing he does is he aligns himself with others in community. Are you in community with others? If not, why not? It's critical to your maturation in faith. 
And then he says, I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. What he's saying is really kind of unique to our culture. We live in a culture in a day and age where we can say so many things, but if we're serious, we have to say, hey, guys, I'm being serious. Or we say things like, we use euphemisms like, I swear to God. Or uh, I put it on my mother's grave. Or uh, what's another one we say? Hey, uh, if I'm telling the truth. Can you imagine if we flip that? Hey, if I'm telling a lie, the fish really was this big. We, we, we have cheapened our words so much that when we want people to understand how serious we are, we will preface it with, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's grave, if I'm telling the truth. What Paul says here, when he says at the end of verse 20, I declare before God that what I am writing to you is not a lie. This is a verbal oath which was law binding. He is saying everything that you've heard from me isn't just a good idea, it's a God idea and I'm willing to put my life on the line for it. What I'm saying, you can believe. Jesus says it this way, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by heaven or by earth, but speak on purpose and with purpose and for his purpose. Wouldn't it be so awesome if when somebody said something to you, you didn't have to question the credibility of it or the motives behind it? And Paul's saying, you don't have to question my credibility or my motives. I'm giving a verbal oath that is law binding. Then he goes on, verses 21 through 24. After that visit, I went north into the provinces of Syria and Cilicia, uh, Cilicia, excuse me, and still the Christians in the churches in Judea didn't know me personally. All they knew, all they knew was about the murderous threats and arresting people and all the crazy things that I did. All they knew is who I was as a Pharisee. The one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. That's all they knew. And they praised God because of me. Friends, when was the last time someone praised God because of your story in their life? When was the last time somebody said, praise God for your story in my life? You know, I want to tell you that one of the leading reasons that people don't share their faith is because they don't feel like they're equipped with Scripture. Well, two things. Number one, if you want to be equipped with Scripture, get into the Scripture. One of my buddies who's relatively new to faith, you know where he learned how to pray? His two little daughters, two-year-old and four-year-old. He didn't come to a class at church to learn how to pray a certain type of prayer in a certain type of way at a certain time, time of day. In a certain, he just sat with his daughters at night and listened to them pour out their hearts to God, unadulterated. You want, you, you want to know what it takes to share the gospel? It doesn't take a collection of memory verses. You don't have to know the the road to Romans or Bill Bright's four spiritual laws. You don't have to to know how to do it, right? Because you're not doing it. The Holy Spirit does it. As we lift his name up, he will draw all people unto himself. People will never remember the memory verse that you quoted to them, but what they'll never forget is the story that you shared with them of your life. God wants you to share the gospel, and the greatest gospel representation that you have is your life. Your changed life, your restored life, your redeemed life, your sanctified life. That what I once was, I am no longer. I am new in Christ, a new creation, the old gone, the new here. That I have been saved and sanctified and set set apart for a purpose and a plan. And God has got a purpose and a plan for my life. And my plan and purpose is to share that purpose with others by simply inviting them into my life and inviting myself into theirs. I don't need to teach you a class on apologetics. Most of you don't even know what I just said. And I love that. I don't care that you understand what apologetics is. Apologetics, just so we're clear, is understanding what you believe 
knowing why you believe what you believe and being able to defend it with scripture. Now that's critical if you want to sit around and argue and debate theology all day. Now I can do that. I can do that with the best of them. And in my heart, there's a pride about me that loves to get drawn into those conversations so that I can somehow show them the right way or the correct way. But you know how much time I spend in those debates? None. Why? Because they're not critical. What is critical are the countless thousands and thousands of people that God has placed in our sphere of influence right here in Blair, Nebraska, who need Jesus. And the only way they're going to ever know Jesus is by your story. And so here's what I want to leave with you this morning, friends. God wants to use his story through your story to change somebody's history for all eternity. God wants to use his story through your story to change somebody's history for all eternity. What do I mean by that? What is God's story? God's story is a story of redemption from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation. It is God doing everything to redeem and to call everybody unto himself. His story is a story of redemption. And why did I say in your story or through your story rather than in your story? Because in your story means it's just in here and you keep it to yourself. God doesn't want you to do anything in your story. He wants to do it through your story where you commit to taking what God has done and sharing what God has done even in how much mess and brokenness there is and he'll use it can you believe that can you believe that God could use a messy broken person from a messy broken marriage and a messy broken financial background who has messy broken baggage to change somebody else's life yes because I am here as a byproduct of it this morning God used messy broken people to share the once true perfect gospel for all time and that was enough God wants to work in his story, through your story, to change somebody else's history. Not who they are anymore. Who they are now in Christ and who they will be for all eternity. But here's the deal. You and I have an obligation and an either even greater opportunity to respond. Friends, God is inviting you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the first thing he's asking you to do is to give your life to him, to fully surrender. No more head knowledge. No more doing church. We're not here to do church. Like when we get together, we're going to be the church and we're going to do it in a way that matters and makes sense that doesn't bore you into the kingdom of God. What we care about is that you fully surrender your life to Jesus and that you share your story with others. Listen, I don't think I've ever said two more important things than I just said right now. And whether God gives me another minute to preach as your pastor at this church or another 50 years, the two greatest things that you'll ever hear me say are right now. God gave his life for you and he wants you to respond by surrendering your life to him. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, which includes you sharing your story with others around you, which will change the trajectory of their history. Could I be any more clear? God loves you and he has a plan for you and he wants you to respond by surrendering your life to him. And part of that response is sharing your life with others. God wants to use his story in your story to change somebody's history for all eternity.